Colossians chapter 1. I began last week a, a study that is entitled From Darkness to Light. And we focus our attention on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus, the Word of God, the, the, uh, the Logos of God, took on flesh. This is one of the main uh, tenets of our faith. One, one of our uh, main doctrinal and, and strong doctrinal positions, of course, is that God himself took on flesh. <clears throat> We're reminded, of course, in this time and season of, of a passage uh, that tells us uh, uh, that uh, the Lord would be born of a virgin, taken from Isaiah chapter 7, and uh, he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God came to us, took upon himself flesh, and, uh, and, and this was so important for us to understand as to why we actually rejoice in this time and season for what Christ did for us. He had to take on a body of, of flesh, and flesh, of course, contains blood because he came as the Lamb of God who take, taketh away the sin of the world, needing, uh, we needing him to shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins the one pure Lamb of God, the one true and sinless Lamb of God that he was. So we went through all of that, and of course this is, uh, the, the, the principle is of course that we have gone from darkness to light from the standpoint of what we know now in the scriptures uh, as, as to the, the purpose and plans of God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Today we want to focus our attention now upon one other thing that we find in this, in this passage in Colossians, which has to do with the firstborn. The firstborn. It's mentioned twice, uh, and uh, once in verse 15 and once in verse 18. And that's where we're going to kind of focus our attention on today. But I'd like to read the whole passage as we did last time from verses 12 through 20. So beginning with verse 12, it's, uh, we need to re remember that Paul is, is, uh, is praying for the church in Colossae, and, uh, and so he really moves as often as he did from prayer to praise, and he says, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us, notice, into the kingdom of his dear son. So we are partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Keep in mind the issue of inheritance here. So we are partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who has delivered us from the power of darkness. So we've gone from darkness into light because he's translated us or transferred us. He's moved, moved us over into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. Now, this is where our focus was last week. He is the image of the invisible God, the very exact stamp of God, the firstborn of every creature, it says. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he... And again, this is all speaking of Jesus. He is before all things, and by him 
all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Please keep that word in mind as we will deal with that as well. And then we'll go on to finish this section that says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So the great lesson that we learned last time in our investigation of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is that no one can draw a line between his deity of Jesus being God and his humanity, Jesus being man, during his earthly ministry and beyond. You could not draw a line and separate those two characteristics or those two attributes of Jesus. There are so many examples of his humanity mixed with his works of deity. We, we talked a little bit about this. I'm, I'm just expanding this a little bit today as we go, get ready to go into the issue of, the first, of him being the firstborn. But uh, so many examples, and we mentioned a couple of them. One of them, of course, we talked about uh, Jesus needing sleep. That was his humanity. While at the same time, at that very same moment, would stand and calm the winds and the storms. That was his deity. That was his divine nature. So we see that happening, and we, we ask the question, uh, is, there, is there any way to <laughs> separate the two? No, you can't. Then there was the fact that Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. That was his humanity. The, next very, the, the, the very next moment, he, he raised his dear friend from the dead. That was his deity. And again, the question is, where does one end and the other begin? One can only say that Jesus was both God and man. This is the point. God and man, Jesus, all the time is God and man. He may have lowered himself from heaven, and he did that voluntarily, we're told in the book of Philippians, that you know this was something that he did voluntarily, but that, that didn't mean that he gave up his deity. He came in his deity, he was perfect, and he had to remain perfect. And even though he was tempted throughout his life, especially early on in his earthly ministry, of course, he, didn't, he never sinned. Why? Because he was deity. Yet he was in humanity. He was in flesh. So this truth itself of what we're dealing with as Jesus being both God and man can also be illustrated in the veil of the temple. Or as we oftentimes call it, the curtain of the temple. That curtain was, some, some believe, to have been about almost two feet uh, thick, uh, and it was a very important curtain to keep people from going into the most holy place or the holy of holies. And the only one that could go in and once a year would be the high priest. So Jesus, when he died, of course, we know that that veil was ripped in two. It could only have been done by God himself. Making access now to the holy of place by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But the Holy Spirit has made it clear to us that this veil was symbolic of the Messiah. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us, 
through the veil that is to say his flesh. So that's an obvious illustration then that the curtain was uh, speaking of Jesus in his, in his flesh. And that very thick curtain made of linen was designed with three prominent colors. It was a scarlet red color and then there was a blue color and there was also a purple color. Now these colors represented and described Jesus the Messiah. For example, the scarlet red color was to remind us of his humanity. Uh, Paul called him the last Adam. Uh, that, that was a good designation uh, because Adam literally means, in the Hebrew, it means red. And then there was the blue color, which is symbolic of heaven. The, the place from where Jesus came, reminding us that he was God. No one could come from heaven if he's not God. But what about the purple? So we know that it is usually associated as a regal color used by royalty. But that's not what we want to focus on here. Why purple in that veil? Consider that when equal portions of scarlet, or red, and blue are mixed together until you can no longer tell where one color ends and the other begins, you now have a new color, purple. Two natures, like two colors, blended so perfectly, so inseparably, can only describe the Lord Jesus Christ as God and man. Well, that's just another illustration, if anybody ever asks you. But this brings us now to another aspect of the character and the attributes of Messiah. The fact that he is called by the Apostle Paul in that one statement when he says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of every creature. But he's also called in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. So let's look at that passage together, Colossians 1 verses 15 through 18, because the other verses are very important here as well. Who is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of every creature, for by him, that's speaking of Jesus, were all things created. So what do we know about Jesus? He's a creator. All things were created by him, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And notice that he even created those things that we cannot see, the things that we are told we wrestle with even every day. In Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and so on and so forth. Well, those were created by Jesus. For his purposes, and we'll, we'll one day know completely, but then it goes on to say, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. Uh, that, that gives us another fact. He was eternal. Before things were created, he was already existing. That makes him God. So we got that point, right? We got, we got he's a creator and, and he's eternal. Before all things and by him all things Consists. And that speaks of his power. Why? Because when, when uh, by him all things are held together, literally held together by God, by Christ. Because it's pointing to Jesus. 
Okay, so we go on to verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in all things, he might have the preeminence. So we're now going to deal with the implications of the incarnation. We talked about the incarnation last week. Now we're going to deal with the implications of the incarnation. In this case, the description of Jesus being the firstborn of every creature and the firstborn from the dead. Now most of you know that I like to make sure to define as many words as possible so that we can have a better understanding of the text that we're studying. So when I, when I stated the implications of the incarnation, I'm using the standard definition for the word implication, which means the conclusion that can be drawn from something, although it is not explicitly stated, or a likely consequence of something. A likely consequence of his incarnation, in other words, or the conclusion that can be drawn from his incarnation is this. In other words, the conclusion and consequence of the incarnation then is that Jesus, because he is all God and all man, is to be seen as the firstborn of all creatures and the firstborn from the dead as pertaining to inheritance. That is, firstborn from the dead pertaining to inheritance. That's going to be our conclusion at the end of the study, so that's where we're headed. So first of all, what we need to do is define the word firstborn. Defining the word firstborn, because the, the Greek word for firstborn is prototokos. Prototokos, which comes from two Greek words, protos and tikto. Now, protos is used in scripture by itself, and it's used for words like first, chief, it's used for first day, and it's used for former, something that came before, former. The word tikto, then, is also used in scripture for words or terms like bring forth, be delivered, be born, be in travail, and or bear as in childbirth. And I say as in childbirth because, you know, bearing children, sometimes you'll think that bearing children might be carrying children which is, can be used that way, but no, it's talking about burying a child for childbirth. So that's the word tikto then, or tokos, as it's put together with proto, prototokos is uh, having to do with this idea that, uh, which comes, by the way, tikto comes from the word teko, which means to produce from seed as a mother. So there's, again, the issue of being born. Now, now let's consider what firstborn does not mean. Let's consider what firstborn does not mean, then we'll get into the depth of what it does mean. Firstborn does not mean that Jesus was born first or created first of all created beings. It does not mean that even though some people believe that. They've carried it all the way from about the, the, uh, the third or fourth century, this idea that uh, this passage here says that Jesus was firstborn, therefore he was created. So keep that in mind just for a minute. Because the context clarifies uh, that for us. It, it clarifies that he was not the first created being. Or that he was born first. It's clarified by the verses 16 and 17 that say, For by him were all things created. 
And again, that are in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him, Jesus, and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So here, here's an important principle in, in hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of biblical interpretation. This is an important principle of hermeneutics, and here it is right here. You cannot separate a text from its context. You cannot separate a text from its context. So what has been the context? The context is that Jesus is all God and all man, but he is also the creator, and he was before all things, which means he's eternal. So here is how we can best understand this principle. If verse 15 means that the Lord Jesus was a created being, as Arianism, I was talking about Arianism earlier, you know, this uh, this guy named Arius, who was back in the 4th century, by, by taking this out of context, began to think that Jesus was a created being, that he wasn't really God, but he was created by God for a purpose. Even though he had some divine qualities, he wasn't God. That was his belief. That has carried on all the way down to what we know today as, as the, 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 th- the thought and thinking of, of groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, who also believe the very same thing. So understand then that if verse 15 means that the Lord Jesus was a created being, then, then, according to verse 16, he must have created himself. Got it? He must have created himself. Which is simply absurd. It is a theological absurdity. What's an absurdity? It is illogical, it is irrational, it is ludicrous, it is ridiculous. Simply, it's silly. That's a better theological term. It's just silly. And so the the phrase, the firstborn of every creature, as we understand what prototokos means, the firstborn of every creature can be rendered, listen carefully, the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Which means that it makes Jesus superior to and distinct from the entire sphere of created beings and created things. He is over all creation. Now that title again, now we're going to build on this understanding. That title, the firstborn of every creature, means that Jesus Christ, existing as he did before all creation, exercises then the privilege of what is called preeminence. Now there's another word that is used theologically, and I'll just mention it to you. It's called primogeniture, which comes from a Latin, two Latin terms, uh, meaning pretty much the same thing. Primogeniture is, is like being that firstborn. But he, Jesus exercises that privilege of preeminence. It's a little easier to pronounce, too. Uh, he exercises the privilege of preeminence as Lord over all creation. For he was there when creation began. Don't forget John 1.1, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
which of course the Jehovah's Witnesses, as I mentioned last week, changed that. So it's a perverted uh, translation, the uh, uh, New World translation of, of, of the scriptures that the uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses use. It's perverted because they've added a word to. They've added, they've added that article A. It doesn't belong there. He's not a God. He is God. And that, that's made clear by great Jew, uh, gr uh, Greek scholars. So understand, for by him were all things created, by him and for him, he being before all things. So, so Paul is not, is, is not uh, being illogical here. He's trying to make it very clear to us what his being firstborn means. Now, this preeminence and authority pertains to Jesus' right over something we know called the birthright. How many of you heard the term birthright? Okay, some of you, most of you, all right. Well, you're going to learn a little bit about it today if you don't know about it. The birthright is the special privileges and responsibilities over all that is to be inherited, over all that is called the inheritance. Do you remember back in... Uh, in our, in our early reading of this passage, uh, verse 12, that we are giving thanks unto the Father which has made us uh, fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Well, now we're going to have a little bit of an understanding about that inheritance. So you see now, here's, here's something I need to interject. First of all, the Jews, uh, there were Jews and Gentiles in the, in the church of Colossae, in the, in the church of the Colossians. There were Jews and Gentiles. Probably more Gentiles than Jews, but there were Jews there. The Jews themselves that were in that church would have understood this without any problem whatsoever. They would have understood the, the, the term firstborn. They would have understood what, uh, what Paul was saying about the concept of being the firstborn. So the Jews who were in the church of Colossae would have had no problem whatsoever with Paul's explanation of firstborn because they knew the concept of firstborn had little to do with being born first. Firstborn does not mean being born first. Consider, if you will, the firstborn. See, the Jews knew about firstborn because they heard it all the time in the scriptures. Consider the firstborn of Jacob. Let's just, let's just start with Jacob. Jacob had those 12 sons. That would become the nation of Israel. And Jacob himself would have his name changed by God from Jacob to Israel. So the firstborn of Jacob was his son Reuben. Reuben, born to Leah, who was Rachel's sister. Now remember, Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah, but that's for another time. But his firstborn, his son Reuben, was born to Leah. Now, when Jacob's sons were before him, this is now at the end of Jacob's life, when Jacob's sons came before him receiving their prophetic blessings, this is what was told to Reuben, who was the firstborn. Okay, are you ready? Genesis 49, verses 1 through 4. We need to read this very carefully. First of all, the sons of, of Jacob gathered together. We're told in verse 1, and Jacob called together his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. In other words, this is where you all are headed. This is where you and your tribes and those who are connected to you are headed. In the last days, gather yourselves together and hear ye sons of Jacob and hearken unto Israel, your father. Jacob was his, give, his first given name. 
Yaakov, but then his name was changed to Israel. He starts with Reuben. Reuben? Now listen carefully. Just look at verse 3. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellence of dignity, and the excellency of power. Stop. Now you would say, wow, that's pretty heavy. I mean, the firstborn, Reuben, that's, that's Jacob's might. Well, now think of those, those of you who are fathers of, of, of more than one child, especially if you had a, your first child was a male, but you know, the, the, the first child you had, your firstborn, well, you, you were proud. You were proud. And, you know, he was, he was going to be your spitting image, you know, right? And uh, I mean, this is everything, everything who you are, you want to put into that, that son, you know, I mean, just. Now, think in the Jewish mindset. The understanding here in the firstborn had these not as qualities coming from the father to the son only, but they are qualities of what the firstborn is supposed to be. He says, you're my might. The beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. This is what you're supposed to be as the firstborn. So let's look at the first thing he says in verse 4. Unstable as water. Well, obviously there's a little problem here. With Reuben. Unstable as water. Any of you ever tried to control a flood? You can't. Water is chaotic. It can have all kinds of properties. It can in itself be unstable and uncontrollable. And Jacob says to Reuben, unstable is water, thou shalt not excel. Wow. Then he explains why. Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, and then defilest thou it, he went up to my couch. Reuben took the opportunity to have relations with one of Jacob's concubines named Bilhah. And this, of course, brought the firstborn down from that level of might and strength and dignity and power mentioned in verse 3. And because of his unstable personality and his unscrupulous, unprincipled lust, Reuben reaped what he sowed. When you look at the life of Reuben from here on, and remember, not everything was, was, was given. He, he's giving his sons now, you know, their orders for what's going on after this. Well, we find out about Reuben, the firstborn, who should have been his might and his strength and his dignity and his, and his power. When you look at his, his line and his 
tribe. There was not one judge. There was not one prophet. There was not one priest or ruler that sprang from the tribe of Reuben. Not one. That would have been reserved. Those things would have been reserved for the firstborn who was might and dignity and power and strength. And then besides, when you look at the, the tribe of Reuben, I mean, that tribe chose the wrong side of the Jordan to live, in, to live on. <laughs> they chose the wrong side of the Jordan, and then when the Assyrians came down, they were the first to be taken captive. The tribe of Reuben. That should have been the might, the strength, the dignity, and the power. So his birthright would be given, it would be given to the sons of Joseph. To Manasseh and to Ephraim, which is also an interesting study in birthright, for we see in the scripture that the firstborn title is something that is transferable. The, the firstborn title is transferable. Genesis, go back to Genesis 41, there in verses 51 and 52, where it says that Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God said he uh, for God said, he has made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. So he named him forgetting. That's what Manasseh means. And the name of the second called it he Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And of course, these sons were born in Egypt. Uh, but Ephraim means fruitful. So one son is called forget, forgetting and the other one is called fruitful. I suppose you can say one's called forgetful and the other one's called fr fruitful. Which one would you like to be? I know which one I am. Where am I? Oh, okay. <laughs> but what's interesting is, is, is that we're told in, in Jeremiah 31, verse 9, and it's really the second part of the verse, uh, so we don't worry about all of the context here, but they said, they shall come with weeping, with supplication, will I lead them, I will cause them to walk by the rivers of the waters in a straight way. Speaking of Israel, wherein they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim is my firstborn, but that's not, that's not the birth order. Manasseh was the firstborn, he was born first, and then Ephraim. And, and you know what's interesting, when you, when you look at this in, in chapter 48, which is when Joseph brings Manasseh and Ephraim before, before Jacob, and Jacob is old and he can't see hardly, you know, so he's sitting at the side of the bed, he wants to see, he, he wants to at least experience, you know, the, the sons of, of, uh, of Joseph, and Joseph brings, brings his sons with Manasseh on his left, and, and Ephraim on his right, facing Jacob, who's now looking at them, and, uh, uh, you know, Ephraim is on Jacob's left, and Manasseh's on Jacob's right as he's facing. Because, and, and see, Joseph knew this, that he needed to put Manasseh on the right because he was the firstborn. And, and when and Jacob would come and bless him, he would have his right hand on Manasseh. But drama happens. And, and Jacob crosses over and puts his hand on Ephraim. And then his left hand on Manasseh, he crisscrossed. 
And Joseph said, oh, no, 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 dad, no, 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 you can't see. You know, Manasseh's over here, here, I put him over here, so you can put your right hand on him. And you know what Jacob told him? He says, I know what I'm doing. God had put it on Jacob to put the blessing upon Ephraim. Sometimes we don't know all of these things that God does and why, but, you know, he knows. Of course, we find out that Ephraim is, is the, the strongest nation in what it was to be the northern kingdom of Israel later. Not a good thing because they were all, you know, um, idol worshipers and all. But the fact that they would have been the strength of, of, of Israel because of their size. Interesting. And by, by the way, uh, it was stated in Genesis 48, his younger brother shall be greater than he. His younger brother shall be greater than he. Does that sound familiar? It should. Something very similar to what happened between Esau and Jacob. Told to Rebekah, the mother, by God. We'll get to that in a moment. Because throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the one who was born first was regularly set aside in favor of one who was born later. The Lord set aside Ishmael to choose Isaac. Ishmael, uh, as the sons of, of Abraham, Ishmael was, was uh, the firstborn, but he was born to Hagar, the maidservant, not to, not to Sarah. But God had promised Sarah to have the firstborn. But as far as physically firstborn, Ishmael was before Isaac. But Isaac was chosen as the firstborn because he was born to Sarah. That was the promised birth. He then set aside Esau and chose Jacob. And again, to Rebekah, he said, the elder shall serve the younger. The elder shall serve the younger. As the Lord had told Rebecca before these unpredictable twins were born. And you all remember now why Jacob received the name Yaakov, which means uh, conniver or thief. Because as Esau was being born, Jacob had his hand on his, on his ankle. And, you know, he said, hey, wait a minute, trying to pull him in. These were babies, but, you know. Even early on, Jacob was already a conniver. So, in a spiritual sense, then, the Lord also would set aside people like Saul to choose David, putting aside, as it were, the old man for the new man. Saul represents the old man in the flesh. David represents the new man in the spirit. And another thing that's really important about David, too, as we'll see in just a moment, uh, when we read Psalm 89, because it, it, it refers to David as firstborn. But let's remember that David, in his own family, the sons of Jesse, David was the youngest. He wasn't even close to being the oldest. You remember when God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to tell him, in that household will be the next king of Israel. So he comes to Jesse and he says, I've come because the Lord has sent me here. I need to see every one of your sons. And he parades the oldest 
to the to 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 the next to the youngest. And they all come through there and they stand before, you know, they do the pose, whatever, you know, before Samuel. And, uh, you know, Samuel says, nope, that's not it. Nope, that's not it. Nope, that's not it. Man looks upon the flesh, but God looks at the heart. And uh, none of them are them and uh, are the one that uh, one choose. But it's in this household. So Samuel has to say to, to Jesse, well, wait a minute now. Do you have any other sons? He goes, well, yeah, there's David and he's out in the field tending sheep and kind of probably smelling a little bit since he's been out there all day long and sweating and whatever else he's doing. So uh, he says, well, bring him in. And of course we know David was the one that God chose to be the king of Israel. And David was anointed with oil poured from a ram's horn. Remember when Saul was anointed? He was anointed with a flask, man-made. You see the differences in the in the kingships of, of both Saul and David. David was anointed with a ram's horn, which was created by God. A flask was something made by a man. Well, men wanted Saul as king, right? Remember the cries, we want a, we want a king just like the other nations? And God said, okay, you're gonna get what you, you're gonna get what you paid for. But finally, when it came down to it, God said, let me give you my king. And it was the king that would eventually lead to the coming of Messiah, the line of David. Okay, well, that's, you got extra, extra story on that one. I, I didn't, okay. So, anyway. So, just like Adam would be set aside for the last Adam, replacing the flesh of Adam with the pure flesh and the spirit of Jesus Christ. So anyway, those are, those are the replacements of, of others. So the reason that the Jewish believers in Colossae would understand the concept of the firstborn was simply because they were familiar with the prophetic word of Psalm 89, uh, verse 27 in particular. But let me read a little bit around it because we do need to see context here. So in Psalm 89, verse 19, it says, Then thou spakest in vision to thy holy one, and sayest, I have laid help upon one that is mighty, I have exalted one chosen out of the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established. Mine arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Well, this certainly was David all of his life, who honored God all the time with his mouth and with his heart and with his life. And, but notice now verse 27. Also I will make him my firstborn higher than the king's of the earth. Now, there's, a, there's somewhat of a transition from just the focus on David and now prophetically on Jesus Christ, the son of David. Notice also, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore and my covenant shall stand fast with him. And notice this, his seed, singular, his seed, also will I make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. 
Who could that refer to except Jesus, the seed of David? And his throne is the days of heaven. So the idea of reading all of that is to say, understand that firstborn does not mean born first. Does not always mean born first. So going back to Reuben for just a moment. So Reuben was disinherited and the firstborn rights and privileges were divided three ways. Joseph received the double portion of the inheritance because of Manasseh and Ephraim. And they became heads of tribes. And then Judah received the right of progenitor, which means he received the right of forerunner and ancestor because the Messiah would descend from the seed of Judah, as David would be in that line of Judah. And then thirdly, Levi or Levi would receive the priestly right as he would then have that uh, responsibility that God has given to Levi for the priesthood. So all of this indicates that the concept of being the firstborn of every creature had nothing to do with being born or even created first. It has to do with rank, it has to do with priority, and it has to do with position. It has to do with rank, priority, and position. The only begotten Son of God, His dear Son, is therefore set apart from all the others. His Son is set apart from all the others. He ranks first. That's the best idea of being the firstborn. He ranks first in priority and in position. He takes precedence and superiority over all that is created because he created all things. And as the head of all creation, understand that Jesus is linked with creation, but he is a part with creation or from creation. Why? Because he is above his creation. He is over his creation. He's not in his creation. You know, you know there are those people that say, you know, that uh, you know, God is in everything. No, God is above his creation. He's not in everything. So, understand now, that whenever you see now the term firstborn or first begotten, now you have a better understanding of the concept. For example, Hebrews 1 verse 6, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, which is what we've been rejoicing over this past week, you know, in the coming of Jesus Christ in flesh, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. You know why that's an important thing? Because in the book of Colossians, uh, Paul writes this primarily for those Gentile believers that were so engrossed in, in the philosophies, the Greek philosophies of Gnosticism, that were actually making Jesus, uh, because the Gnostics have come, had come into the church, they were making Jesus uh, uh, one of a, of, of a, of a level of angels. They didn't believe Jesus to be flesh. They thought him too good to be flesh, but he was not the highest rank of angels either. <laughs> so, you know, Gnosticism, which has to do with, with you know, knowledge, is, is, is lacking because it is completely 
off of the mark when it comes to the word of God. This is why here, even here in Hebrews, it says, let all the angels of God worship him. Why? Because he is above his creation. He's not one with the angels in the sense of being like them. He is above them. And then, of course, there's the passage in Romans 8, verse 29, that says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The firstborn among many brethren from the standpoint that we are to be heirs, join heirs with Christ. You go back a little bit in, in chapter 8 of Romans, and this is what it tells us. That uh, he is the heir and we are joint heirs with him. Because we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and as Christ, as Messiah and as God in the flesh. So that in itself was the firstborn of every creature. To understand that passage in Colossians. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. I hope, I hope that clarifies some things for you. The next phrase would be in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Let's look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now we talked about preeminence as having something to do with inheritance. And we'll talk about that in a moment. I'd like to also add Revelation 1 verse 5 because a similar phrase is mentioned here. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, which is basically prototokos, uh, the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So life from the dead, if you, if you just want to encapsulate the, the thought, life from the dead began through Jesus Christ. Life from the dead began through Jesus Christ. That's why he's always called the beginning and the firstborn. Life from the dead began through Jesus Christ. What was it that Jesus said to, his, to the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, in particular to Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me though he dies shall live again. I'm the resurrection and the life. So life from the dead began through Jesus Christ. As someone once wrote, and if, if you, got, if you got to write this down. This is a really great statement. But they said, Jesus not only designed the womb, he also destroyed the tomb. I like that. Jesus not only designed the womb, he also destroyed the tomb. He designed the very womb that he would be in. To come into this earth but at his death three days later he would destroy the tomb because he came to destroy sin death hell and the devil so Jesus then is the source of all life and this Jesus became obedient unto death the death of the cross and in his very sovereignty Jesus dismissed his own spirit on the cross. He said, Father, into thy hands commend my I commend my spirit. Now this is significant for us to understand. Because there were, time, because there were times when Jesus said to his disciples, 
and even to others, especially his detractors. He said, no one takes my life. I give my life and I will take it again. I'll give up my life and I'll have it again. In essence, that's what he's saying. Have you ever wondered why it was that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and everyone who had a problem with Jesus, why for three and a half years they could never wrangle him, they could never rope him and then tie him up and take him in and and do what they wanted to do for three and a half years? Because it wasn't up to them. Jesus came to die voluntarily. Jesus came to die on his terms, not on ours, not on man's terms. He came to die on his terms. I'll die when I'm ready to die. The moment that Jesus died on the cross, that's when he said, it's finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus was in control of his life and of his death and of his life all by himself. He allowed his body to be placed then in a never used tomb while he himself would descend to preach as as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3 verses 18 through 20. For Christ also has one suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but quickened or made alive by the spirit by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison which sometime were disobedient. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. To make it very clear to those souls that were in prison from the time of, of, of the flood, Jesus went in to say, I was the ark. I was the ark. And the door was open. And you missed coming in. Just to make it clear that you know the opportunity you had for everlasting life. At the same time, he he apprehended for himself the keys of death and Hades. We see in Revelation 1.18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Only Jesus has the keys because he's the only one that knows where to lock and unlock. And while Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead, the fact is that half a dozen people were raised from the dead before he was. (laughs) Is that going to change anything? Well, no, but we still need to understand why that is. There were half a dozen people raised, at least in scripture, from the dead before Jesus was raised. Elijah the prophet was used by God to raise one. Elisha... The protege of Elijah, with a double portion of Elijah's spirit, raised two. That's three. And then Jesus himself raised three. That's six. Half a dozen people raised before Jesus dies and is raised again. And so the Lord Jesus was number seven. Isn't that a good number? He's the seventh one raised on the earth from the dead. But here's the question. How is number seven number one? 
How is number seven number one? The firstborn from the dead. How is number seven number one? Well, the answer is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44. Let me read it to you. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. Notice this. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. Here it is. It is sown a natural body or, you know, sown, put into the ground. It is sown a natural body and there is a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So now, here we go. Those raised before the resurrection of Jesus were sown a natural body and raised a natural body. In other words, everyone that was raised in the scriptures, the one of Elijah, the two of Elisha, the three of Jesus, all those that were raised would have to die again. That's kind of the sad part of the story. Think, think of that, that, that day that Jesus spoke into that, that tomb. They, they removed the stone, the tomb of Lazarus. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And, and here comes Lazarus, already in the grave four days. And, and you know, there, that naturally, there would have been a little bit of a stench when they opened up. Oh, but yet here he comes. And they unwrap him, you know, from you know, his grave clothes. And there stands Lazarus alive. And they rejoice and they have a, you know, a feast and whatnot. But not too many years later, Lazarus has to die again. Folks, I can tell you, National Enquirer has not found Lazarus yet. As if to say he's still alive. No, he had to die again. They would eventually all die again. <clears throat> but our Lord and Savior was sown a natural body. Jesus had a body that could be touched, that could be seen, that could be felt, that could eat, that could hear, could smell. He had a natural body. And our Lord was sown a natural body, but he was raised a spiritual body. His body of flesh was raised, and by the way, it was raised with spiritual qualities and properties and raised triumphant over death. Remember, it was a different kind of body because that body could appear, you know, when the, when the disciples were all together in fear in that one upper room. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appeared and he says, do not fear. That's too late, Lord. <laughs> it's too late. We, we already feared because, oh, we didn't expect you. The doors were locked, but Jesus appeared. But then he appeared and he says, touch me. Wow, that's a special body. But here's, here's the point. He will never die again. He will never die again. Aren't we glad for that? Okay, okay so that's, that's good for us. Because if he dies again, we're in trouble. But he doesn't. He's alive. So that is why he is the firstborn from the dead. And all those who therefore will partake of the resurrection shall share in his resurrection so they are to be raised with spiritual bodies similar to his. 
We're told in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, for our conversation or our citizenship, literally, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 21, who shall change our vile body. Now, we don't normally like to consider our bodies to be vile, but uh, don't take a bath for about a week and a half. Don't, you know, shampoo your hair or don't do anything, you know, to your body and you will be considered vile. Whew! Your family will throw you out. So you understand what vile is then? So he says he'll change our vile body because they're flesh and they need to be kind of pampered and taken care of, you know, cleaned and washed and all of that kind of stuff. We shall change, or who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So, I mean, this is what he's going to do when he raises us together, whether it be uh, in resurrection or in the rapture, he's going to raise us and change us immediately from the corruptible into the incorruptible, from the mortal into the immortal, as is described for us in, in, by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. So now let's get to the last point that we need to make very quickly here. He is the head of the body of the church. Verse 18 of Colossians 1, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now, what is the preeminence? Again, remember it has to do with inheritance, but it also has to do with position. The highest or the place of highest dignity of all the place of highest dignity of all, the place many people have coveted and desired throughout all the ages is reserved for only one. There's only one that could be in the highest place. That's Jesus Christ, the Lord and the Savior Jesus Christ. No one can take that seat. No one can take that place. That is how high he is. That is what the preeminence of Christ Ha, uh, means It means that he is preeminent, he is the sovereign, he is the authority over all that is created, all that has been made. Mike, encouragement to you, especially as we're heading into a brand new year. My encouragement to you <clears throat> is to see Jesus as first and foremost and above all things in your life always and in all things. So don't just give him place. Don't just give him place. Yes, I have Jesus in my heart. Yes, I have Jesus in my life. And that's important to, to us when we say that. But is it, it isn't just giving him place. It's more than that. Because we can, we can give place for Jesus and then we can go off and say to the Lord, well, you know, don't move, I'll be right back, Lord. And try to live our life kind of our own way and then we come back to Jesus. No, that's, that's not the Christian life, really. That's not what the Christian life is supposed to be. Don't give him just place. And then don't give him only prominence. Because people will say, well, yeah, Jesus is prominent in my life. I understand of his, his fame and importance. And, and I use those terms uh, purposely. Because that's how some people look at Jesus. Well, you know, 
his fame, his, his importance. And yeah, he, he's got a lot of importance. And yes, you know, I'll go to church, uh, you know, I'll be a CEO, Christmas and Easter only. Did you get it? CEO, Christmas, Easter only? Okay, I know that you all aren't CEOs. You come every week. But he's prominent, but here's, here's the problem with just being prominent and having a place. Because we'll, we'll leave some doors open, but we'll close others ourselves. It's not just about being prominent. You know, when people don't go to church for a while and, you know, they have business and things to do and, and whatnot, but when they have trouble, where do they go? Come right back to church. Okay, I got trouble, man. I'm here. You know, well, I need prayer. I need help. Where were you before? Where were you before? That's prominent. That's putting, yeah, he's, he's got a place and a prominent position, but only when you need him? Okay, let's get beyond giving Jesus place and prominence, and let's give him preeminence. Ooh, that's different. Because when we give him preeminence, what we are saying is that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords over all that we are and all that we have. Over all that we are, over all that we have. That means that no matter where we go and no matter what we do, Jesus is Lord. Yes, I've given him place. Yes, I've given him prominence because I understand the importance of his life in, my, in mine. But more importantly, prominence has to do with 24-7, 365. 24-7, 365. I don't like to use that, but I'm using it today because I think it's that important to say that there isn't a moment that we breathe that Jesus isn't supposed to be important in our lives. He is. And if we could give him thanks for every breath that we, breathe, that we breathed before we came here today, we'd be thanking him with every breath. Now, I have a scripture passage. I'm going to do this. It's going to take about three minutes. We're going to cut, kind of cut into the... But we'll dismiss you quick. I, I, I like to usually have a, a passage of scripture or a verse of scripture as a, as, a, as a life verse for a new year. Sometimes I do it, sometimes I forget, because I'm like Manasseh, forgetful. But, uh, but then again, there's a lot of other scriptures that come into play throughout the year. But, but when I establish it at the beginning, I, I come back to this and I write it out in my Bible time and time again, because I want to make sure that this is the life verse for me for, for the coming year. This year for my life verse is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Now, you can have it if you'd like. Uh, you can borrow it. Actually, you can have it because, you know, I, I'm not the one who controls that. But if you need a life verse, this is really nice. It says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. It has qualities of both that which has happened, that which is happening, 
and that which is to come. And I think that we need to live every year from now on as we wait for the coming of Jesus that way, thanking him for what he did in our past, thanking him for being with us every day of our life, thanking him that when he appears, we'll be with him. Isn't that a good thing to have for the coming year? I hope it is. And I hope that, uh, that today's study has been an encouragement. It's been, it was a lot. I try to fit in a lot. So uh, if you need to, uh, listen to it again later and just kind of go little by, little by little. But it's important to realize that this is why we rejoice this week in the coming of Jesus. Because of who he is as all God and all man and that being the firstborn of every creature above everything that he created and firstborn from the dead because he has given us that opportunity for life.